continue our, our study here in uh, uh, Philippians. Great book, book on joy. We've already experienced that. We've, we've really, it's, it, I hope it's encouraged your heart. As we've been reading through this and studying through this, it has certainly encouraged my heart. And we see the things that Paul went through and the things that he was rejoicing in. And uh, it's helping us to learn to rejoice in all those situations, whatever comes up. And uh, even in the difficult times, even what we face right now with things that are happening with our, our church members, things they're going through, and Ms. Carolyn right now, we're, we don't know what that situation is, not going to make any assumptions there. Uh, we'll pass on information on that. But in the midst of even the darkest and difficult times, we can have joy. Amen? Amen? Because we have a, a great Savior. Now, I want to mention this. I failed to mention this a while ago, but if you were visiting we gave you one of those jellies. There's a card attached to that. And we'd love for you to take that off and, and just fill out that information. And you can leave it with us. By the doors, each of the doors, there's a little box with a slot in the top. You can just slide it in there and we'll have that. Uh, we're not going to do anything with that other than maybe send you a letter or a card or a text or something. But we'd love to have a record of your visit. So if you do that, we'd be greatly, greatly appreciative. Um, all right, so as we, we complete, as we continue in our study, I'm a little shook up this morning. There's been a lot going on this week. I just tell you, as I got up here, I've been emotional all morning. And uh, you know, we've talked about this with, with our elders when we meet sometimes. Uh, you know, it builds. You feel those things when a lot's going on, right? And as a pastor, those things begin to, to pile up. I feel it sometimes in, in my emotions. And um, just thankful for, to the Lord for, for His goodness. Uh, but boy, we really do. We rejoice with our body when it rejoices, and we hurt with our body when it's hurting. And so, uh, but we're going to be we're going to be focused on the Lord this morning. So, uh, Father, I just pray right now that you'll bless in this time. God, give me clarity in my thought and in my speech. Help me to, Lord, just to to preach the message that you've prepared, what you want communicated, and uh, use it, Lord, for your honor and glory this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. All right, the title of the message this morning would be this. It would be Wanted Pioneers. Pioneers. And y'all, y'all would know what pioneers are. Now, we, we, used to do, we used to do a thing called Bible time. At, uh, when I first went into ministry, 20, it, was in the, it was in 2000, so I guess it's almost 24 years ago now, when I first got into ministry, and we did a thing there, and it's, what it is, it's VBS on, on, it's not, it's on caffeine and and, uh, and sugar and all of that stuff. That's what Bible time was. And it, we, we went from, man, we went from cradle all the way through high school. We, we'd have 700 kids on that campus for that week. So it was a crazy time. And so obviously as we're leading up to that, we, we want to get everybody involved on that. We don't want to get everybody into the groove of what we were doing. And I remember one of the things we would do is, is we were promoting on Sunday morning and, and our youth pastor, Jeff Williams, who y'all met, little Jeff, and he's a fire, he's a Fireball, you know, he's a lot of energy. But Jeff would get up there and get the crowd going, fired up for Bible time. And he would do this. He'd do, fired up, fired up, fired up. And the whole crowd would shout that. And he'd go, motivated, motivated, motivated. You know, and everybody's into it. And sold out, sold out, sold out. And so, you know, everybody's just getting them fired up for Bible time. We'd have rally, that rally Sunday when it would start that Sunday night. And so that's the way I want to live my Christian faith. That's the way I want to live my Christian faith. Man, so many times we're so tame and we're so laid back in our Christian faith. We'll shout at a football game. We'll shout, we'll scream, we'll praise the team or a player for what they did. 
but we won't shout for Jesus. We won't get excited for Him. Folks, I want to be fired up, fired up, fired up. I want to be motivated, motivated, motivated. I want to be sold out, sold out, sold out for Jesus. Amen? Amen? You know, we want to be a part, don't we, of something bigger than ourselves. I do. I want to be a part of something bigger than me. We want purpose and meaning in life. Man, life is... Man, so what, what so many people are struggling with today in this world is they don't see purpose in their life because they've rejected God. The purpose is in God, in the relationship with Him, and they've rejected Him. And with Him, there's purpose, and we have meaning in life. We want that. And I found that we're inspired by pioneers. I think pioneers inspire us. They motivate us. Trailblazers, visionaries, risk takers. These are things that, that motivate. So I was thinking about some pioneers. And obviously with that term, you, got, you can't help but think about the Old West. Now we still talk about Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark blazing a new trail, going west, going places no one had ever been, finding a way to get there. People risked everything to go west and make a new life. And some gave everything. They risked everything and some actually did give everything. And then I think about after Pearl Harbor and, and after our 9-11, those events that, that inspired a nation. In both times, our nation would have been probably a little more passive, a little more laid back, let's not get involved in things. Those events happened and our people were inspired. All of a sudden, people were willing to risk everything to go and fight for our nation. And some gave everything in that. The space race, when, when that hit, hit our nation... Americans were inspired to, to get to the moon first. And it captured everyone's imagination. I can imagine little kids. I was a little too young at that time. I, was, uh, I guess I was a year old when we, when we got on the moon. I don't hear no hogwash. When we got on the moon, we did get on the moon. I'm not saying hogwash because I'm older than that, but just the fact that we did go to the moon. And um, Mar- Americans were inspired by that. Little kids were fired up about that. You know, everybody was glued to the television set. And in that pursuit of getting to the moon, people risked everything to get there. And you know what? Some gave everything in the pursuit of that. Then I think about the Ecuador Five. Some of you will be familiar immediately when I say that. The Ecuador Five. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint. Wow. Roger Udarian. Ed McCulley and Peter Fleming, heroes of the faith, visionaries, trailblazers, risk takers. They, they, were, they, were, they were pioneers for the gospel. Pioneers. These men risked everything to go to Ecuador and reach the Alca Indians. Now the term Alca means savage. They were a savage people. And their desire was to go and and reach them with the gospel. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I agree with Jim Elliott. He also said, uh, I read one time that he had said that he was ready to die for the Alka. He was willing to give his life. Those Those men were willing to give everything to reach an unreached people group with the gospel. And you know what? The fact is all five of those men gave their lives. They died in that pursuit. They died at the hands of the Alcas. 
The story doesn't end there. And we know the story as Elizabeth Elliot and some others went back in and were invited in and lived in the village. And they won that village to Christ. Almost all of those people now, they've changed their name. They're not Alka anymore. They're, I think they're, they're called the Wyadoni, I believe is the name. But they, they're believers. That, and the, the, the fact is, those five men who never saw it, but because they blazed the trail, because they were pioneers, the gospel went somewhere it had never gone before, and it had changed the eternal destination of an entire people group. Amen. I praise God for that. You know, we all want to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves, something worth dying for. Now, the Apostle Paul, he had that pioneer spirit as well. And as he, all through his ministry, you see that. But it continues on as, later in his ministry, he had a desire to go to Rome. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, it says, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, capital S, purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Romans 1.15 says, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now Paul understand, he under, when you understand Paul, if you've studied Paul and you understand him, then as I have, and I don't say I know everything about Paul or understand everything about Paul, but I understand enough to, to say this, that I believe that he was a, a man who had a God-given, prayer-directed vision and desire and passion. I don't believe his desire to go to Rome was just some, some fancy that Paul had. I believe it was a desire God had given him. Paul desired to go to Rome as a preacher, but instead he went to Rome as a prisoner. Philippians 1.12, we read as we pick up here in verse 12. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, as he's writing to the Philippian church there, he says that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, I just have to say, wow. Because what Paul says is the things which happened to me. Six little words right there. Six little words that capture, that cover an incredibly painful and eventful span of at least two and a half years. Maybe, maybe even longer. But this, this, all of this that went on, and Paul captures it not by whining about it and complaining about it. Paul captures it with these things which happened to me. We wouldn't do that. We'd have you sit down and, and get you a cup of coffee because we're going to be here a while to tell you all that I've been through. Let me tell you. Now, Paul does tell the story in other places. He shares that. Others share the story. But Paul doesn't right here. He's not rehearsing this. I don't know if everybody in Philippi had heard the story and knew what had happened to him, but he wasn't interested in sharing the things that necessarily, the details, the gory details of that or, or, or rehearsing that. He was interested in focusing on what it had done. But I want to give you an idea of the things that had happened to him. Um, because if you didn't know already, if you don't know already, you got to go do a little research and then figure out what it was that happened to him. And again, all these things that happened to Paul, it would have been easy for him. But he didn't whine. He didn't complain. He didn't lament. He didn't bad mouth, smart mouth, poor mouth, or potty mouth. He didn't, he didn't complain about the circumstances. He just said the things that happened to me. All of this had happened. So what happened to him? Well, the record of the things that happened to him are given in Acts chapters 21 through 28. If you, if you study there, read through that, you can see all these events that happened. 
And it begins with Paul's illegal arrest in Jerusalem. He goes into the temple in Jerusalem and they arrest him. And the Jews thought he had desecrated their temple by bringing in Gentiles. The Romans thought he was an Egyptian renegade who was uh, on their most wanted list. He was a guy who stirred up a lot of trouble, bringing insurrection, so to speak. And they wanted him. That's who they thought. The Romans thought that's who Paul was, is this Egyptian. Paul became the focal point of both political and religious plotting and remained a prisoner in Caesarea for two years. So two years he's a prisoner. He's been falsely arrested, really illegally arrested, and he's been held now for two years. And he's testifying, he's sharing his faith the whole time, but he makes an appeal and he, he finally makes an appeal to Caesar, which was the privilege and the right of every Roman citizen, and he wanted to go to Rome. So he appealed to Caesar. And they would have to send him then to Rome. So in route to Rome, the ship is wrecked. And the account of that storm and Paul's coverage, and I think y'all preached about that this morning, the, 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 the coverage and faith of Paul in this is one of the most dramatic in all of the Bible there in Acts chapter 27. As you look at that and what happened in that shipwreck, you see his faith, you see his unquenchable faith, his just trust in God. And so after three months of waiting on the island of Malta, Paul finally embarked for Rome and for the trial that he had requested before Caesar. And then he's, he gets there. They lock him up. He's under house arrest. He's able to have his own house, but he's under house arrest. And many believe that he would have been shackled to a Roman prisoner 24 hours a day. One of the praetorium would have been sent to, to one of those guards would have been sent to be shackled. And they would serve like six-hour shifts. So he's got four a day. Four different soldiers a day that Paul is having a chance to witness to. You, you, you know, you talk about, they think he's the captive, and Paul's going, <laughs> yeah. Hey, welcome here, uh, Artinius. How's the family, Artinius? Let me tell you. And, and he begins to just share with them and pray, and he's writing. He has visitors, and he's witnessing, and he's reading the Bible, he's praying, and he's singing all these things to a captive audience. Amen? Why didn't he complain? There were others probably complained. In fact, we know there were others that, that thought, thought Paul was probably too, uh, too bold. Too, well, if he'd, have been, if he'd have had a cooler head, this wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have been in jail. The gospel wouldn't have been hindered. Because now Paul's in jail and the gospel's not going forward. It's being constrained. Oh, little do they know. Amen. But why didn't Paul complain? How, how, how could he not complain with all that he went through? Wouldn't it be easy? Wouldn't it be easy to go, Lord, all that I'm doing for you. Everywhere I've been, the churches I've founded, the people that have gotten saved in my ministry, and Lord, now I've been in jail for two years, this shipwreck, I'm stuck on an island, I finally get here, now I'm shackled to somebody in jail. Wouldn't that be for most of us our human nature? Amen. We'd be complaining about what was going on. How could he not question God and what was happening? And I'll say it's this, it's because he had the single mind. We've talked about that in chapter 1. It's all about the single mind. Paul's mind is set on Christ. It is focused on Christ. He was single-minded. His focus was on Jesus, not on Paul. Well, it's easy. When we focus on us, man, all we see is all the things that are working against us, hindering me, whatever it is. But when our eyes are on Jesus... We don't spend so much time focused on us. He was single-minded. He was all in with Jesus. He had a vision and passion for something bigger than himself, a vision and passion that was commissioned by God himself to be a pioneer of the gospel. That's what Paul was. 
Paul trusted the Lord and understood what the Lord was doing through all of his circumstances, the things that were going on, all these things which happened to me. Paul understood what God was doing. He may not have understood initially. He may not have understood in the midst of everything, but we never hear him question or complain. He trusts the Lord. But now Paul has come to a place. He understands what God is doing in this. But preacher... Uh, why, why would all these bad things happen to Paul? He was doing so much good for the kingdom. Why did God allow him to suffer all this? Why, did, why didn't God protect him? That's the questions we often ask. And you know what? It's probably this question of suffering. Why did God allow Paul to suffer? Why did he allow this great man of God to go through these problems and to suffer? And there's probably a question that for many of us, that may be the greatest struggle we have in understanding is this question of suffering. It's not a new question. It's it's for all of Christianity, this is a question people have had. When they wonder, they don't understand it, and we we can't point everything out and explain it. Folks, just understand this. God is bigger than we are. Amen? We don't, he doesn't owe us an explanation on everything. We don't have to know everything. What we do have to know is He's trustworthy, and we should trust Him. Amen? So, this question of suffering, there's a couple of things I want to just mention this real quick. First is this, there is suffering in the world. The world suffers because of sin and the fall. There's sin in this world, and it's because of us. Suffering in the world is the natural consequence of the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden and the resulting sinfulness of the human race. We brought this on ourselves. Raymond says often, if you choose to sin, choose to suffer. And so we, are, we chose to sin. We, we didn't, I, didn't, I didn't choose it, you know, 2,000 or, or all those thousands of years ago in the garden. I didn't necessarily choose that, but we do choose that. We choose it because we're born with a sin nature. We are sinners. I've said it before. Dogs don't become a dog because they bark. They bark because they're a dog. We sin because we are sinners. We're born with a sin nature. And it all goes back to the Garden of Eden when man willfully chose to disobey God. And sin came upon all man. It's been passed down ever since then. And therefore, we're born with a sin nature. So there's sin in the world. And when there's sin, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be, there are going to be these problems. There is suffering in the world that is a result. When I get, if I get cancer, if I were to get cancer, you know what it is? It's a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. Disease in the world is a result of sin. And, and it may or may not be my direct sin. I believe that we have sin in our life that brings problems. I had a conversation with someone this morning. He said, you know what, I have a health issue. And it goes back to lifestyle choices I made earlier in life. And I have to deal with it. And that's a great attitude. He understands. I, I brought it on myself. I'm not going to blame God. I brought this on myself. We need to acknowledge that. It's, it's, it's our choice that we sin. Okay, so there's sin in the world and there's going to be suffering because of that. But, but Paul, Paul obviously here, he's not suffering because he was a sinner. He's a, he's a born-again child of God, all right? So then why do believers suffer? Let's look at four reasons real quick. The first is this, that uh, if we don't judge ourselves, if we don't judge ourselves, we're going to suffer. Look, look, um, you don't have to look. write this down and look it up later. 1 Corinthians 11.31 For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. What's the idea there? The idea there is, how about if I keep an eye on my life, 
How about I keep a short account with God? How about I, when, I, when I sin and there's something in my life, I get it before the Lord and I confess it. So if I would judge myself, if I would look at my own life and I would judge what's going on in my life and the way I'm living my life, you know what? Then, then I deal with it with God. He doesn't have to judge me then. Verse 32 there says, But when we are judged... We are chastened by the Lord. You know what happens for a believer when we get outside the will of God, we get into sin, what does he do? He corrects us. Does not a loving father correct their children? If you're a loving father and you don't correct your children, I'd question whether you're truly a loving father. When we look at it, you're not loving your child by letting them do whatever they want to do and getting their way and spoiling them and, and just they're the center of the universe. You're not doing them justice. You need to correct them. You need to instruct them. There's chastening that comes. And so the Lord teaches us that if we would, if we would come to the Lord and we would confess our sin and we bring that to Him, you know what He does when we confess our sin? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what? Then we don't get chastened, chastened and, and corrected for the sin in our life because we've dealt with the sin. We've taken it to the Lord. Amen? So the first one is when we don't deal with sin ourselves. The second one, uh, they're suffering for the Christian to gain spiritual experience. That's growth and maturity. Romans 5, chapter 3 says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. Here's what happens when we, when we face difficult things, we face hard times in life, when there's suffering in life, it brings maturity, it brings growth. And God allows that. He can either bring it into our life or He'll allow it into our life, but He uses it to grow us and mature us. And there's another reason why we should say, Lord, what do you want me to learn instead of why am I going through this? See the difference? Lord, what can I learn? What do you want to teach me? Why are you letting me go through this, God? It's a big difference, right? I don't want to be whiny with the Lord. I want, to, I want the Lord to teach me. I want to learn from Him. Another one is to prevent sin in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says this, "...and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations." Now, the God had revealed so much to Paul. He, he was, Paul was just a special, special man. God did special things in his life. And, and so what happened, because of the abundance of the revelations in his life, says, a thorn of the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Sometimes the Lord will let something come in our life to prevent us from sinning greater later and, and to prevent that from happening. And then D, the fourth thing, is to increase effectiveness of a believer's testimony and witness. The things that happen to us, Romans 8, 28, we understand this. We understand that we, we know that all things work together for good. It doesn't say that all things are good. There are a lot of things that happen in life that we wouldn't just go, that's a good thing. But you know what? We, are, we have the promise that whatever happens in our life, all things, all things, not some things, not most things, not a few things, all things, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. He is working in the things in our life for our good and for His glory, okay? So Paul understood that God was in all of this, and he embraced it and rejoiced in it. He rejoiced in what he was going through. He embraced the difficult times because he understood that God was working in it and through it. 
Amen? And he goes again back to verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul says all of these things that he doesn't even mention that we just talked about, this two and a half to three year journey of him going from Jerusalem being falsely arrested and falsely imprisoned to going to Rome and now being under house arrest, chained 24 hours a day to a, to a guard. He understands that God is using it to further the gospel. Now that word furtherance, it means this. It means to advance. That's what it means, the furtherance of, to advance. And the idea is that of a pioneer cutting his way through through brush. And you, you can see that. You go in a jungle and you're trying to get in there and you've got a machete and you're chopping the stuff to, to make a way, a trail to get through there. It's that idea is, is, is to further, to, to advance. It's a Greek military term referring to an army engineer who would go before the troops to open the way into new territory. That's the idea. It's to advance. And we would think today it's, it's on the lines of the Marines when they storm the beach. The Marines come in, they storm the beach, take the beach to open up the beach for the armies to come in and all of that, all of the war machine to come in. It's that idea, it's to furtherance. But for us, it's to, it's to the advance the gospel. That's what Paul says, that these things which happened to Paul had actually increased his effectiveness. It had happened to open new territory to the gospel. Now look at what God used. Number one, God used Paul's chains. He used his chains. Uh, first, first thing under that would be this, is he used Paul's chains to make Christ known, verse 13, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. These are people that many of them had never even heard of Jesus. Now, there's, who's Jesus? Who are, who are you talking about? Who's this Jesus? Who's this Jesus Christ? Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus from Israel? From, from Palestine? From, from over in Jerusalem? What, who are you talking about? They, were, they wouldn't have known. But it says that through this, through his chains. Now, Paul goes to Rome. What's the chances if Paul just shows up in Rome that he gets to go in and sit down and talk to government officials in Rome? Zero. Zero. What's the chance that he is to go have a, he's going to have a, 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 a praetorium um, um, Christian fellowship? FCA, fellowship of Christian, he's going to have fellowship of, of Christian praetorian. You know, we're going to have this military, no, there was zero chance that was going to happen. Zero. But he's chained up. They've chained him. They've made him a captive in his own house. And Paul is sitting there chained up and he's writing letters to churches and to friends. And he's got people coming in. He's got groups that come in. He teaches some Bible studies. He preaches some messages. He prays and he's talking to the people all the time. And it says that the whole palace guard and all the rest knew. They knew that my chains are in Christ. They knew who Jesus was. It's amazing that God used Paul's chains to make Christ known. The one who was not known before, now he's known. And, there, and what a great witness Paul would be. You didn't have to worry about him being you know, in a bad mood one day or this. That. Paul was, was an excellent witness. B, he used Paul's chains to win Romans, uh, Roman guards. Not only do they know who he is, but evidently, obviously from the Scriptures, some knew him. Not just who he was, but they knew him. 
Verse 13 again, so that it, was, that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Well, Pastor, how do you figure that, that some got saved? Well, if we flipped over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul says this, All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. There were people within the guard. There were people within the, the government, within, the, with, within that whole machine that the gospel was going for. Imagine, you have, you have a guy that he's chained to, and, and he hears Paul. He may not have gotten saved after six hours with Paul, but man, he might have showed up when one of those times when Paul was having a Bible study now in his own time just to go, What's he, I want to hear what else he's got to say. But now they're going and talking to others. And they're talking to others and more and more. Imagine the chatter. Paul was not an insignificant prisoner. There has been a lot of chatter among the guard. And now they're hearing these things and they're talking more about it. He, he, but they knew who Paul was and Paul made sure they knew who Jesus was. That was the important thing. Made him known and then there were those who came to know him. And then C, he used Paul's change to encourage the brothers. And I spelled encourage, E-N dash, courage. Encourage. That's what it means. It means to fill someone with courage. Look at verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Much more bold to speak the word without fear. And that word speak, it, it doesn't mean preach. It's not the idea that all of them are out there preaching. But it's talking about everyday conversation. They were having, witnessing soul-winning, testifying conversations. Now they had become, they had become confident. You know, it, it's, it's amazing how persecution has the opposite effect of what you would expect. People would think, wow, when persecution comes, people will get, they'll cower down. Non-believers who want to rule Christians, they start persecuting them, they even kill them. And what happens? Christians are emboldened. We're emboldened. It's amazing how God uses those things, and we're inspired by that. They were encouraged by Paul's being chained up and being in prison, and the way that he handled that, they were filled with courage. They were more bold to share their God, the gospel, share their testimony. Paul's persecution and imprisonment, it inspired, emboldened, and filled with courage the Roman believers to share their faith. Man, that's what we ought to be. It's amazing how God used the chains on Paul in that way. The second thing God used, he used Paul's critics. He used Paul's critics. Now, when you're, when you're single-minded, uh, you can rejoice about what God's doing. Let me say that again. When you're single-minded, when your mind is set on Christ, your focus is on Christ, you can rejoice about what God is doing instead of complaining about what others may be doing to you or against you. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, opposing to add affliction to my chains. Now that phrase there, selfish ambition, I think it's the King James Version would, tell, would use the word contention. It's contention. Selfish ambition, contention. But if you look up what the word means, it means this, to canvas for office. To get people to support you. You know what it is? It's team building. It, I want you on my side. And so it says here, you know, and some have speculated that these might have been the Judaizers. I don't believe it was because Paul says the gospel was preached. 
And, and he, did, he, did, he wouldn't have said that about people who were out preaching a false gospel or perverted gospel. He wouldn't have said that. I don't believe. And so I believe these are people who may, maybe are real believers, but there's a touch of envy. There's envy. You know what? Envy brings strife. Those two go hand in hand. When there's envy and jealousy, it brings strife. And there were some who were jealous of Paul. They were jealous of his fame. They were jealous of what he had. Listen, they, they, were, they, they wanted what Paul had, well, of course, without the chains. But they wanted the notoriety. They wanted the spiritual power that Paul had. But they weren't willing to pay the price for it. So what were they doing? They were envious. They were selfish ambition. So they're running around, and, and they were more interested in asking new people, whose side are you on? Rather than, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you know Jesus? No, 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 they're more interested. Hey, hey, are you on my side or Paul's side? That's what they were interested in. They wanted, a, they wanted their following. They were more concerned with, with, with that than they were with the, the people's very souls. Paul's aim was to glorify Christ and get people to follow Jesus. His critics' aim was to promote themselves and win a following of their own. Big difference in that. Regretfully, this kind of contention is alive and well among Christians even today. We still see that kind of stuff today in churches and, 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 and other places. Even in ministry, we see that. And it's a, it's a thing that should be immediately confessed and turned from, uh, this envy and jealousy of what someone else has or what they're doing. A lot of times, envy isn't even that I want what you have. I just don't like that you have it. That's what it is a lot of times. They don't necessarily want everything Paul had. They didn't want all the, the responsibility that came with that. They might have just been jealous that people liked Paul more than they liked them. You know, I know, I know about that. I mean, I'm so sick of John MacArthur. And, and, and... <laughs> That's a joke. I've, I've said before, I'm the associate pastor here. MacArthur's the pastor. I'm just the associate Pastor Aaron and I are just associates under MacArthur. Now, I have fun with that because I, I really, it, does not, it doesn't bother me in the slightest little bit. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Those are good things to have fun with. Um, but there are people that, that do get jealous about that. They don't, they, they're jealous of other people and what they have. Verse 17, but rather, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 18, Paul says, what then? Question. He's asking, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. That's, that's all that mattered to Paul. That Christ was preached. He didn't care if he had to preach in prison. He didn't care if others out there were preaching and trying to build up a team and their own thing when the gospel was preached. And you say, well, how could people that are acting like that preach the gospel? Listen, I'm convinced there are men who stand in pulpits that are going to die and go to hell that are preaching the gospel. They're, they're, they can speak the truth from the word and they've never met the Lord themselves. I'm convinced of that. You know, the, 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 Billy Graham said half of the congregation was lost. His son has said it's probably more like 75% of the congregations are lost. So we, we got to make sure we know the Lord. Paul just said, I don't care what they're out there doing. I don't care if they're bad-mouthing me, tearing me down. It doesn't matter. The gospel is being preached. Jesus is being preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. 
because the gospel is going forward. Now, I think about this. There's a story, and it's, it's a matter of historic record, that two great English evangelists, John Wesley and George Whitefield, they disagreed on doctrinal matters. Both of them were very successful, preached to thousands of people, and, and saw multitudes come to Christ. It is reported that somebody asked Wesley, John Wesley, if he expected to see Whitefield in heaven. And, and, and Wesley replied, no, I do not then you do not think Whitefield is a converted man. He says, of course he is a converted man, Wesley said, but I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I so far away that I will not be able to see him. Wow. That's, that's the opposite of what Paul was facing in Rome. That's guys that they didn't agree doctrinally, but he understood, look, we got some differences, but the differences aren't the, the, the differences that divide. They're not fundamental differences. He's not out there preaching that Jesus uh, wasn't sinless. He's not preaching that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. He's preaching truth. But I don't agree with everything. We have some disagreements, but man, that man has done so much for the, for the kingdom of God, and I glory in what he's done. That's the way we ought to be, folks. Number three, God used Paul's crisis. He used this crisis. So because of Paul's chains, Christ was known. Because of Paul's critics, Christ was preached. Because of Paul's crisis, Christ was magnified. Christ was magnified. Verse 19 and 20. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, here's his heart, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Does Jesus need to be magnified? That'd be the question. I mean, he's so big. Does he really, does Jesus need our magnification? Well, let me explain it this way. We have, we have telescopes today, right? And they see out into space. The stars that we look at through a telescope are so much bigger than even Earth. But a little old telescope, you know what it does? It, 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 this, this gigantic star that's so far away we can't see it. But a telescope magnifies the star and it brings it then closer so that it can be seen clearly. It's huge. It, we don't make it bigger. But when you look through a telescope, it magnifies it. It brings it close. It brings it to where we can see it clearly. You look at the opposite way. There's things that are impossible for us to see with the naked eye. And, and yet they're brought closer and clearer with the magnification of a microscope. It brings it close. It makes it so we can see it. It feels closer. We can see it. We can see it clearly. When the believer goes through crisis and the unbeliever watches that Christian, they, they can see Jesus magnified and brought so much closer. And he, and, and he can be seen so much clearer. That's what happens. When, when we go through difficult times, believer, and we handle it as a believer... We honor God as we go through these things. Then those who are watching, and I'm, let me just promise you this: people are always watching, and, and especially non-believers who know you're a Christian because they're looking for something to tear you down with. And and if they if they watch when you're going through a crisis and they see how you handle it, they can see how big and awesome and loving and caring and glorious and powerful is our Savior. Amen. Amen? Amen. Paul feared 
neither life nor death. He just wanted to glorify Christ in his body. Here's a question I ask myself. Am I single-minded? I desire to be. I want to be all in the same way Paul was. I want to make Jesus known. I, I want to see the gospel preached. I desire that Christ would be magnified in my body. I mean, I can tell you that's my desire. I want to be able with all my being to proclaim with, with, with that one believer. There was, there was one guy who was going to die the next day, and he wrote this, this uh, I, I, it would be an anthem, I guess is what you would call it. But I wish I could be the same way and be as all in as he was. And I'm going to read this to you. Um, Fred, you'll remember this. It's called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. He gave me a copy recently, but I've heard it for years. And you've probably heard this before. But this is my heart's desire, and I hope this is your heart's desire as a believer. I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His, and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, plain, uh, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, or rewarded. I live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few. But my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I will, not, I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, Prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work until he stops me. And when he does come for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Amen. Pastor Aaron, you guys can come. As, we're, as we've been looking through this, here's the, here's the thought. Paul was single-minded. Are we as believers single-minded? Are we, are we double-minded? As James says, have we got a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom? I saw a great illustration the other day. A preacher was preaching. He had two big old ladders on stage talking about this double-minded. He said, when you're double-minded, you're caught between the two ladders. And you can't go up with either one of them you got to get on one and go up, or you're going to have to get on the other and go up. But you can't straddle in the middle and, and stay there. You can't. Are we, are we single-minded for Jesus? Is it all in with Him? Are we still dabbling and playing around in the world? Am I single-minded and focused on Jesus when bad things happen? 
Do I, do I work in my life to make Jesus known? Do I witness with the goal of seeing the lost come to faith in Christ? Do I magnify Jesus in my body, whether life or death? Folks, it, it ain't going to matter, I mean, in less than the twinkling of an eye. The moment we pass from this life into eternal life, the things that we thought were important here, you know, you just wish you could get a glimpse. But the Lord doesn't allow that because we walk by faith today. Amen. We walk by faith. So how strong is your faith? I want to be single-minded. I want to be a pioneer for the gospel. I want my life to further the gospel. And if that means sickness or tragedy or loss, well, I don't plead and beg and, and desire those things in my life. If they come, I pray that I'll have the wisdom to understand it. I'll have the faith to trust God and not question Him in it. And then in all I say and all I do, it'll be like Job. And I glorify God. Amen? Amen? This morning, what I've talked about, really preaching to believers, but this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, this morning you're like, Pastor, I, I want that. I want something. I, I, want, I want this mission that's bigger than me. I want, I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to know this one who died on the cross for my sin who made a way for me to be saved and go to heaven and not have to worry about going to hell, who, who took care of that on the cross of Calvary. This morning, uh, Pastor, I need that. If that's you, I would, I would plead with you. Don't sit there. Don't hold on to the chair in front of you and go, oh, I want to go down, but I'm scared. Don't be scared. Come down. Let us, let us talk to you, give you the gospel, introduce you to Christ this morning. But believer, maybe this morning is a time for you just to reevaluate evaluate where you're at. Am I, am I truly single-minded? Is Jesus my all in all? Because if it's anything else, we need to make some adjustments. Father, I just pray as we go into this time of invitation and reflection, response, that it would be a time that we'd respond. God, whatever it is you, you're speaking to our hearts about, I pray that we've listened. As we've listened, we've listened, Lord, humbly, to hear from you. And I pray now, Lord, that we would be obedient to respond to what you're doing in our hearts. Maybe this morning we just need to come and pray. Maybe this morning we need, to, we need somebody to pray with us. And if that's the case, I pray would you would come down. If you need someone to pray with you, come down and say, Pastor, I need somebody to pray with me. We'll pray with you. Father, I pray you'd speak clearly to hearts and we would respond accordingly. Do, Lord, through this and with this, whatever it is you desire. And we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.